Well, guys, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the church, and we've been kind of taking a look at the purpose behind the church using the book of Ephesians. And and it's interesting because the Apostle Paul kind of opens up with the book of Ephesians with this this explosion of emotion about the the enormity of God and the the power of what God is doing in the world. And so so when when we look at the book of Ephesians, we actually in Greek have the longest kind of run-on sentence that opens up the book of Ephesians. Paul is just telling us about the goodness of God and the power of his plan and the enormity of what it is that we call Christianity. In fact, it's not a long time, it's, it's a long time in the book of Ephesians before he ever actually gets to the point of what he's writing about. If I, if I were to ask you this morning, what do you think of when I say the word church? How would you respond? Probably for every one of us, there's a different response to that. For some of us, the church is excitement, and for others of us, there's guilt. For some of us, there's a sense of gratitude and and, and overwhelmed by the goodness of God, while others of us, if we're honest, might say boredom better describes our idea of church. There's joy and there's pain, there's disappointment, but inspiration. There's optimism, but there's fear. There's anger, there's encouragement, but there's also frustration and sometimes exhaustion. When we think of church, you might think of church music or church worship or church community or, or church buildings or church outreach or church leadership. You might think of church abuse or you might think of church reform. You might be thinking of church doctrine or church family or church finances or church politics or unity in the church or priorities of the church or growth in the church or maybe church planting. When we think of, when we say the word church, we sometimes think about the time of the church services, or the mission of the church, or the purpose of the church, or the foundation of the church, or the size of the church, or even the location of the church. But it's interesting to me that when the Apostle Paul thought about the church, he thought about one singular thing. If you have your Bibles, flip, click over with me to, to Ephesians, the first chapter this morning. We're going to pick up in verse number 22. As the Apostle Paul, for the first time in the book of Ephesians, a letter to a church actually mentions the word ecclesia, what they would have used or what we call and translate church. He finally mentions what it is that he's going to write about. And he says this in verse number 22. And he, being God, put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When Paul thinks about the church, the first thing that Paul is going to say is that the church is about Jesus. And I'm preaching this sermon this morning because I have a, I have a fear that it's very easy for us to forget that the church is, by definition, about Jesus. We can get so involved in the other things that are a part of church, the exciting parts of church, the the things that maybe use or utilize our talents and our abilities. We might get excited about the things the church is doing in the world, so much so that we forget that the church at its core is about Jesus. It's not ours to define, it's not ours to change, it's not ours to restrict, nor is it ours to expand. We don't create it, we didn't start it, we didn't die for it, and we certainly can't pay for it. Only God, through the work of Jesus on the cross, was able to do any of those things. 
And so as Paul opens up the conversation with a church about church, a church that we, as we know, and we will reference several times in this, in this sermon series, a church that when we look again at it in the book of Revelation, Jesus said, guys, you're doing a great job. You're nailing it in almost every category. You're dealing with false teachers. You're teaching the truth. You're preparing people for the future. You have enthusiasm, and you have persevered. But I have this against you. You have lost your first love. This church lost its passion, that driving enthusiasm behind the scenes. Just like we can lose our passion and driving enthusiasm for the work of the Lord, one of the easiest ways to do that is to forget that the church isn't about us. It may be our body. In fact, it is the body of believers together, but it's not our church. It's not our mission. It's not our purpose. It's his. Paul starts off and he reminds us that Christ is the head of the church. Nobody else in this world is qualified, nor should they assume that position, right? Paul just points this out very, 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 very clearly in the beginning. He said that he, being God, put all things under his feet. This is after Jesus resurrected from the dead. This is a a theme throughout the Bible. And he said he put all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things To the church. Jesus was given to the church with a specific job description that he should be the leader, that he should be the head, that he should be the command center, that from him the mission of the church should flow. Undoubtedly, the Apostle Paul is referencing back to that psalm. The psalm, the eighth psalm, right at the beginning of one of the longest books, in fact, the largest, longest book in the Old Testament. And the psalmist is writing about the glory of God. You you guys may know this psalm. There's a worship song from the 90s or early late 80s that was written from this text. But let me just read it to you this morning. Psalms 8, picking up in verse 1, the psalmist writes this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still your enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heaven, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever uh, passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. If you're like me and you grew up in church or you've been in church for a long time, you run a great risk of forgetting about the glory and the goodness of God. It's so easy for us in our world today where we're constantly wowed in every turn with something new, something more, something explosive, something riveting, for us to forget that the creator of the universe has entrusted us with a massive responsibility. The psalmist here reminds us that in the beginning when God created Adam, he said, I'm putting you in this world and I want you to dominate the world. I want you to take over things. I want you to control and manage what I have put in your care. God had an enormous amount of respect for his creation. 
But we all know the story. Adam and Eve were a little bit like you and I. They were weak in areas of self-control. They were quickly manipulated into seeing things from a non-truthful angle. They took from the tree that they were told not to eat from. They ate from that fruit. And yes, their eyes were opened. And yes, they become like God in an area in which God did not want them to become like him. Because we seem to be unable to manage our appetite for sin. Constantly, generation upon generation, we've, we, we've, we've bought into the devil's lies. We haven't dominated the world, we've destroyed the world. We haven't managed God's creation, we've used it for our own purposes. But Jesus came, and Jesus did something very, very different. And I think when the Apostle Paul included that line, he put all things under his feet. He's thinking it back, back to the psalm in the Old Testament, this idyllic image of a glorious, majestic God who entrusted his creation with a monumental task. He recognizes that Christ accomplished that task. Christ alone is worthy to be the head of the church. It's all about Christ. And I'm hoping that for each of us, Christ is more than just a name on a sign, but that we intend to make him the heart and soul of the leader, the mind and the passion behind what we do as Christians. You know, it's interesting, but several years ago, on the United Kingdom, on the island of Brittany, England today, they were doing some archaeological work in a fort that dates to around 100 A.D., Jesus was born somewhere around 0 A.D., died on the cross somewhere in the 30s, we, we think. So we're talking scarcely 70 years past the time that Jesus died on the cross. And we're talking about a, a location way on the other side of the known world. This was out on the ragged edge of the, of the Roman Empire. And as they're digging around there, they, they find a, a piece of, of clay tablet that that used to appear to kind of be a marker, like a, like a number sign for a house. But there were two distinct Greek characters written in the clay, an X and a P. If you know Greek, you know that the X and P are the beginning and ending letters of Christos, or the name of Jesus Christ. It was written in Greek, not necessarily Latin, what meant, which meant that it wasn't an official Roman, Roman uh, item. It was some believer who had, who had brought Christianity to the island of the savages less than 70 years after Jesus had died on the cross. That's how explosive the New Testament church was, guys. We sometimes don't realize the intensity of what God, what God uh, caused to happen in that first century world. When those in Ephesus said that the, those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They meant that the world had been turned upside down. Political systems, socioeconomic systems, the world was transformed by the gospel. But there was one thing that they knew that sometimes we forget. And that was that Jesus was the head of the church. It wasn't their church. It was his and Paul tells us something else that's really important in this little paragraph or this little sentence in the opening portion of the book of Ephesians. He tells us that Christ is for the church. We know that he, 
he died for the church. We know that he gave up his life for the church. We know that he set up the church in his mission and ministry here. But, but Paul says something unique here. Let, let me read it to you again quickly. He said, and he put all things under his feet, that being God. But then God also did this, and he gave him as head over all things to the church. God sent his one and only son into this world and he allowed him to lose his life so that we might gain ours. And then he gave his son to us, to the church. What ways did God give his son to the church? Well, there's two very powerful ways that God gave himself to the church. Number one, he purchased the church with Christ's blood. It says up in verse number seven, you might remember this from a couple weeks ago, the, the Apostle Paul wrote in that kind of long run-in sentence, he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Redemption is simply a word that means that we were bought back from ourselves and our own brokenness. We were bought back by the blood of Jesus Christ. I know this morning that that's not something that's a shock to you guys. All of you, or at least most of you, probably know that. But guys, the price for us to be able to gather here today and worship and to know that our eternity is secure in God was the blood of Jesus Christ. God gave Christ for the church. But God didn't stop there. Later in his ministry, Jesus begins to prepare to the disciples, and he, he begins to tell them, hey, guys, I, I'm about to leave. I'm about to fulfill my purpose here. And of course, they're resistant to that, right? They're like, no, we don't want you to leave, Lord. In fact, Peter will get in a lot of trouble for that. Um, but no, we want you to stay forever. And I understand. I mean, I think all of us would if Jesus was a part of our congregation. And all of a sudden, he got up on Sunday, and he's like, hey, guys, I'm about to take off. We'd be like, no, Jesus, don't go. We want you to stay. It's great to have your presence here. We want to be close to you. We want to hear your teaching. We want to see your miracles. And yeah, that's great. But Jesus had a very different opinion. He said, no, 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 guys, it's good that I go. Because when I go, God will send the helper. The other thing that God did is that God secures the church through his spirit. He didn't just give us his son to provide freedom and forgiveness from sin. But then he gives us his own spirit. Notice what he says in verse 13. And through, and, and through giving the Holy Spirit which seals us as God's possession in Christ. Again, I know this morning that we know this here, but I wonder if we've forgotten it here. We've been, we've been filled with the Spirit. It's no longer sufficient for God to be cooped up in some 10 by 10 room in the back of a temple, shielded off with a curtain. He, he made that abundantly clear on the, day, on the day of Jesus' death. The hands of God reached from heaven and tore that, curtain temple, or that temple curtain in two, and they could sew it back up all they wanted, but he was no longer in that Holy of Holies. God's intention was to make his home, his place, his temple, the heart and life of his people. That's you and me, church. We've been filled with the spirit of the living God. The same spirit that filled Jesus, the same spirit that was filling John the Baptist, the same spirit that filled the Old Testament prophets should be alive and well in our lives today. The problem is, is that some of us ignore it and some of us refuse to follow it. When I was a kid in college, I 
followed a story of a guy that was right on the edge of the internet becoming a thing. And this was one of those stories that kind of organically cropped up in the, in the, uh, in the internet, uh, the early internet version. It was October of 1997. A guy by the name of David Huxley decided to do a big PR stunt. And he got a harness and got a cable, and he strapped the cable to a 747 Boeing jetliner. That is about... I think 187 tons of aluminum and engines and steel and seats, right? And if you've ever seen one of those inter- international kind of jetliners, they are huge, you guys. Just massive airplane. This guy goes out here on a runway, tennis shoes, shorts, and a t-shirt. In fact, that's him actually, this is him today. But this is a him actually doing it in a little black and white picture down there. And he straps himself to this airplane, and he sets a Guinness Book of World Record because as he's pulling, he actually moves that ginormous airplane, I don't know if ginormous is a word, but it is now, a gigantic airplane, several feet in a minute and a half or so. And for it, he, he got his name written in a book, and he got all kind of notoriety, and years later, we talk about it, although other people have, of course, strapped themselves to bigger airplanes and pulled them farther distances since his first attempt. But let me tell you something, church. He moved that plane a few feet. The newspapers wrote about it. Sports Illustrated put a picture in. Decades later, we still know his name. But he never got that plane off the ground. That plane was still right on the tarmac. He may have done something extraordinary for a singular human being to do, but he had in no way the power to actually allow that plane to fulfill its designed purpose. The truth is that you and I today are a little bit like David. We look at a job that the church has. We look at the mess that's in our life. We look at the challenges that lie before us. And we put our harness and we hook on our cable and we start leaning into it. And maybe some of us, if we're powerful enough and we train hard enough and we're lucky enough, we might actually move that giant burden a few feet. But we will never get it off the ground because we don't have the power in ourselves For it to accomplish its designed purpose. Church, I really believe this this morning. The church in America and the modern world is stagnating. And we're stagnating because we think that we run the church. We think that it's our ideas that's going to carry the church into the, into the future, that, that we can pull the load, that we can cause the church to fly again. Listen, church, if it's up to us, it will never fly again. But we have been given a spirit of a living God within us that empowered the New Testament church to transform the world in just a few centuries, and that same power is in the world today. We need to recognize that the church is not us. We're not the head of the church, excuse me. The church may be us. We may be the hands and feet of Jesus. But we don't have the answers. We don't have the power. We don't have the strength God does. God gave us Jesus Christ. God individually gives us his spirit. We dare not stifle the work of the Holy Spirit. We dare not quench the fire of the Holy Spirit by continuing to live in sin or complacency. We are called to live differently. Christ is for the church. And I just want to ask you this morning, do you love the church? Because a lot of people in our world today say, you know what, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. 
And Satan would love for you not to love the church. Satan would like for you to complain about the church. Satan would like for you to, to, to distance yourself from the church. Satan would like for you to have a critical spirit toward the church. And I'm not saying this morning the church does everything perfect. We don't. We're humans. But Satan would love for all of us just to take a back seat in the church. Because there's nothing that Satan fears more than a church that's on fire. There are places in the world today, as we sit here in America, where the church is on fire. There's places in the world today where people are coming to the Lord in masses. You may not see it on the news. You may not know about it, but people that are on the ground do know about it. Many places where the church is exploding today, it's not even safe to talk about it, but they do anyway because they recognize God has given us Jesus Christ. God has empowered us with his spirit. He's sealed us as his children. We have a job to do. So if God gave us the church and if Christ is the head of the church, it just makes sense that the church should be for Christ, doesn't it? It just makes sense that, that everything that we do as a body of believers should be, should be accomplishing the work that God put us into the world to do. That it shouldn't just be about what we like and what's comfortable for us and what works for us, but it should be about what's actually accomplishing the mission that we've been given. There's a restaurant in downtown Atlanta called the Church of God Grill. And the guy was in downtown Atlanta. He was asking around, where do we go eat? You know how it is when you're in a big city. There's not like Burger King and Wednesday, Wendy's in downtowns generally. There's a bunch of really good restaurants, but you don't know which one's good and which one's not. So he was asking around, and someone said to him, hey, you, go, you might want to go try out the Church of God Grill. They have really good fried chicken. And so he's like, okay, sounds good. So he goes in, and this restaurant's just popping. I mean, the place is crowded. There's people coming in and coming out of the restaurant. And sure enough, it's a fried chicken restaurant, which I know you guys just assumed. If it has a name like Church of God Grill, it has to be a fried chicken restaurant, right? Um, but um, people are eating fried chicken. He ordered the house special. They brought it to his table. He ate it. It was wonderful. And so as he's, he's going out, he, he stops by the counter to pay his ticket. And he, he just asks a question that's burning a hole in his mind. How in the world did this restaurant get the name Church of God Grill? So he, he asks the, the kid at the counter, he's like, hey, how'd you guys get your name? And the kid's like, oh, well, he said several years ago, a whole group of people came down here and they started a church plant. And, and the church plant was doing great, man. It was booming. There were a ton of people, but this wasn't a very affluent part of town. So there were a lot of needs, but there wasn't a lot of income, and there wasn't a lot of people being able to bring things into the church. And so someone had an idea that what they should do is that they should open up a, a, a restaurant and part of the church property, and, and, and the restaurant could like go through the week and serve people who work downtown meals, and that money could go back into the mission of the church. And so they did. They, they opened up the restaurant. And man, the restaurant took off. I mean, you look around, you can see this place is popping. The man happened to be a preacher. So he asked the second question that maybe you're asking this morning. What happened to the church? The kid said, well, you know, the, the, the restaurant got bigger and, and needed more space. And there needed to be expansions. And some people thought maybe it should open up for some, some hours on Sunday when the baseball games were downtown. And so, so we, we kind of took over more and more of the property. And the church just kind of started getting smaller and smaller. And I think, I think they closed the church down a year and a half or so ago. But the restaurant is doing amazing. Guys, Satan is not afraid of a church that's selling fried chicken dinners. 
But Satan is afraid of a church that's leading lost people to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Satan is not afraid of, a, of an organization that has lost its vision and purpose and forgotten that its job is to fulfill Jesus' job, not to make great meals for people in downtown Atlanta. That's wonderful. I'm glad that they have a great fried chicken restaurant in downtown Atlanta. But we need more in downtown Atlanta than fried chicken. We need the Savior. And we can never let ourselves be distracted from our ultimate purpose. If you think I'm hollering at you this morning, I'm not hollering this morning. I am just passionate about this stuff. We live in a world today, guys, where we have lost our vision of what God called us to do. We're more worried about our comfort. We're more worried about our preferences. We're more worried about social issues than we are about the lost condition of people. And that's got to change. Because that's what Jesus was about. Jesus said, I have come to the world to seek and save that which is lost. Yes, we're his body. As Paul said it, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God wants to fill every single person in this room with his spirit. He wants every single one of us to see his vision. He wants every one of us to passionately pursue his purpose in the world. That's what God wants. That's what God's vision for the church is. How do we accomplish that? Well, there's four things this morning that I think that we need in order to accomplish that. There's probably six dozen. Jesus was teaching in an area called Caesarea Philippi. Beautiful place. Was then, it still is today. There's this giant cave right there with this deep, deep, dark water. And the waters flow out of this natural spring. And they flow down over rocks. And they create just this beautiful area full of little spots where you can stop and rest and contemplate life and the coolness that it provides there. And I envision that that's where Jesus is with the disciples as he asks them in Matthew, the 16th chapter, in verse 13, a simple question. He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is. Jesus had been in ministry for a while this, by, by this point in time, and he's just curious, what are people saying about me? And in verse 14, they, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others say that you're Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. All good things, right? John the Baptist had been beheaded. Some people thought Jesus was somehow a reincarnation of John because both of them were filled with the Spirit of God. It was evident to people, right? They're like, one of these is like the other. And then they mentioned other people, Elijah, another person that was filled with God's spirit. Remember when, when, uh, when uh, Elijah, when, uh, Elijah w- resurrected, Elisha said, I want a double portion of your spirit, Elijah. I want to be filled like you are filled. Jeremiah, one of the prophets, all these men were powerful men. And then Jesus asks in verse 15, he says, but who do you say that I am? What do you guys see in me? You guys know me better. These guys, they're the crowd, but... Who do my friends say that I am? And Simon Peter answers. He simply said, you are the Christ, the son of a living God. A simple statement of faith, but really summarizes it. You are Christos. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. We know exactly who you are. You're the Messiah that we've been waiting for. You're the answer to the problems of this world, Jesus. Peter recognized that, and Jesus was excited. Uh, Jesus, in verse 17, says back to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say that you are Peter, 
And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Here's this neat little play on words. Jesus is using a bunch of plays on words here. He says to Peter, you are Petros. That was Peter's given name now. Remember before he called him Simon Barjona. That was his normal name. Jesus sometimes does this. God does this. He changes people's names when he tasks them with a purpose. He said, you're Petros, little stone. And upon this rock, Petra in the Greek, All right, this boulder, this truth that you have said, that I am Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. If you haven't got it yet this morning, here it is from the words of Jesus. The church isn't ours, it's Jesus's. He claimed it, he is gonna build it, he adds to it. But I want you to notice this next part. And the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, will not overpower We always read that and we kind of think like the spiritual forces of evil will never overcome the church. But that's not what Jesus is saying right here. There in Caesarea Philippi, probably not a stone's throw from where Jesus is talking. There was this this deep, deep well, this deep spring that the ancient world said was the mouth of hell. And, And they would throw sacrifices into it and their superstitions told them that the sacrifice sank, the gods accepted it, it's a sacrifice floated, God didn't accept it, and you had to give a greater sacrifice, and if you go to other day, they'll tell you that they threw sheep and goats into that, but we know from history that they would also throw children into that. Jesus is in this place, both beautiful and yet wicked and broken all at the same time, and he's telling his disciples that my church, the gates of hell, will not be able to hold it out. He wasn't talking about evil overtaking the church. He was saying that the church was going to overtake the evil. Guys, there is a powerful, powerful statement in what Jesus said there. Guys, we're central to the plans that God has for this broken world. So what does Jesus expect from us as we we close this morning? Number one, I think that God expects that we have an appropriate attitude. And we could talk about attitude for the rest of the day. I'm going to pick one thing because I think if you have this one thing straight, everything else will work its way out. The Bible calls us to be people that are known by the way that we love one another. We need to have an attitude of love toward this broken world. John 13, in verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment commandment I give you. And you might not think anything of this, but the reality is that Jesus didn't give that many new commandments. He reiterated a lot of the old ones, but this is a new one. He said, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Our love for one another is not open to our interpretation or whatever we're kind of comfortable with. He said, no, you are going to love one another like I have loved you. If you want to know what that looks like, look at how Jesus loved people. And then he says this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. It's not by the name on the door or the bumper sticker on the car. It's not by the kind of clothes we wear or the music that we listen to. Those are all great things. But Jesus said, the mark of my disciple will be the kind and quality of love that they have for one another. 
Jesus was given a question once asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he brilliantly, of course, answered back. And he said, the greatest commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Listen, guys, if we love God with everything that we have, a lot of the other stuff that we deal with is just going to kind of deal with itself. It's going to be really, really hard to sin if we're in love with God. It's going to be really, really hard to, to, to do a lot of things that we struggle with in temptations if we are on fire for God. Every Old Testament hero of the faith that had a failing would themselves say, I wasn't where I needed to be in my relationship with God when that happened. But then Jesus followed this up with this statement. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, although he wasn't asked, is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love yourself? What do you want for you and your family more than anything else? I don't know about you this morning. I know what I want for my family. I want to spend eternity with my family. I want Michelle, Kelsey, and Kayla if they get married to whoever they marry and, and any grandkids that we might have. And I want those people to be with me forever in heaven. And I think that every one of us this morning feel that way, right? We want the people that we love to be with us for eternity. But my question to you is, if we are to love our neighbor as ourself, are we as worried about the people that are around us as we are about our own family? Because I detect this attitude in the church today where we think, well, I'm all right. That's on them. My family's good, so ah, whatever with anyone else. And Jesus said, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves." Jesus was, of course, asked, well, who is our neighbor by a brilliant, a brilliant uh, lawyer? And Jesus told the parable that we know of the Good Samaritan in which a guy is going from one town to another. He finds a guy in a ditch. He picks the guy out of the ditch. He takes him. He cares for his needs. In other words, Jesus is saying, anybody in your path that has a need, that's your brother. That's your neighbor. We are called to love them like we love our own family. Second thing that the church, that, that God expects from his church is that we're committed. We live in a world today where we don't like to commit to things. I, I was reading this past week about, about RSVPs and how a lot of programming uh, people are just in an uproar right now because you send out an RSVP and very few people actually send them back. And yet a lot of times people will show up to the event. And, and the thing they figured out is, is that most people are like, I don't want to commit to that in case something better comes up in between now and then. That's a culture we live in today. Listen, guys, I, I don't know about in your life, I can't speak for you, but I can tell you this in my life, that Satan will always provide me something better in between now and what I know I need to do for God. He always provides me something that's a little bit more exciting, something that kind of distracts my attention. He's just an expert at it. He knows Jason better than I know Jason, and he knows exactly the things that will cut me off course. There's one solution to that, and that is that we fix our eyes, that we commit our heart on God's purpose. In the New Testament, there's this little phrase, and it says that Jesus fixed his eyes on Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus was committed to what God had called him to do. And nothing that came up would distract him from that commitment. Guys, we need that kind of commitment in the church. We need people that are present. We need people that are praying for the needs of the congregation, both those that are seen and those that are realized, both physical and spiritual. We need people that are giving 
Because without giving, the, the, the church just doesn't grow. It doesn't go. God, God respects that. We need people that are willing to serve and use of their abilities and their talents and their time that the kingdom and the message of the gospel might move forward. Guys, remember something. This is not a one-man show strapped to a harness with a cable on a giant jetliner. That jetliner will never take off by itself. God never designed the church to function on its own. It was a group of people working together, committed to pulling in the same direction that led to the radical things that we see in the New Testament church. Number three, we need a focused vision. What I mean by that this morning is simply that we need to recognize that God can and will do what he said he will do. There's a, there's a little story in the book of Ezekiel. read it when I was a kid that always just kind of lit up my cartoon bubble. I don't know if you guys have one of those. Ezekiel 37, in the verse 11 verses or so, and I'll just summarize it quickly for you, but Ezekiel is called by God, and, and he, he sees presumably in a vision, he sees a valley full of dead bones. He describes it as a vast army, but it's just dead people. All the implements are there to fight a war, but there's no life in that valley. It's just bones after bones stretched out over this whole thing. And God comes and he asks him, he said, what do you see? And he said, I see a bunch of dead bones. I see ancient history. I see has been. I see things that used to be, but no longer are. God said, well, why don't you prophesy over those bones and tell them to grow flesh? Well, if God tells you to do something, it's a dandy idea to do it. And so Ezekiel prophesies over the bones, and he, he tells them to grow flesh. And before his very eyes, muscle and tissue begin to form, and skin begins to cover. This once empty empty uh, valley full of bones is now full of bodies, but there's no life in them. They're just lying there still, nothing happening. There's potential, but there's no reality. God says, well, what do you see, Ezekiel? He said, I see a bunch of bodies lying around. And he said, why don't you prophesy over them that they might have the breath of life? And he does, and God caused the breath of life to flow through that valley and fill the, fill the lungs of all those dead soldiers, and they all rose up. And as Ezekiel saw it, it was a mighty army. And God said, this is Israel. This is what God can do. I know some of us this morning have come to church and we look around our world, we look around the church, we look around our own personal lives and we see nothing but dry bones. But we don't serve a God who's limited. God is limitless. He can speak into the darkness and create light. He can take dirt and form the, 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 the foundation for man and he can breathe into him the breath of life. We serve a powerful father and I think that church, we need to see that. We need to have a, a vision to recognize that we've been called to a monumental task by an all-powerful God. And fourth, we need to have a compassion for lost people. Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. He said in verse 19, he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. It's an interesting word, committed. It means he is fully entrusted the message of the gospel to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Guys, we're not here to sell something. 
We're not here to get something from somebody. We're not here to pressure people into doing things that they don't want to do. We are simply here to beg and offer people reconciliation. We're here to ask the question of those people that we rub shoulders with, that we're friends with, that we're family with, how are things between you and God? Because I've sorted that out in my life. I've had my sins washed away. I've been filled with His Spirit. And I can tell you that there's no better way to live. It has transformed me from being a self-centered, egotistical person to being a person that's learning to love lost people and love people better than I ever had before. How about you? Where are you with Christ? That's our job. We are an ambassador. Remember, guys, it's not our church. We are just representatives of the head. We're the hands and the feet of the one who God gave us. Christ is always the head of the church. The Spirit of God is always the power behind the church. But we, we are the ambassadors for God, for the church, and for the message of the gospel. Truth is, a Christian without a church is a whole lot like a student that doesn't go to school, or a soldier that will not join the army. A Christian that doesn't go to church is like a citizen who doesn't pay taxes or vote or a salesman with no customers. A Christian without a church is like an explorer who doesn't go exploring or a seaman without a ship or without a crew. A businessman who's on a deserted island. An author without readers. A tuba player without an orchestra. A parent without a family. We've been called into community by our Heavenly Father for a purpose. That purpose is that we might reach out into the darkness of the world around us and we might expose them to the goodness and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a man that once made a habit of just falling asleep every Sunday in church. Now, I'm not here to criticize you if you fall asleep on occasion in church, because I do. But this guy did it every Sunday come in with his wife and his children. He would plop down in the pew and promptly as the preacher began to speak, he went to sleep. As he's, as he's sleeping one Sunday, unbeknownst to him while resting in church, the electricity was cut to the church. It was one of those churches that didn't have any outside light. And so here they sat in the darkness, but the preacher knew his sermon and he was full of the Spirit of God, so he's just keeping preaching on. And, and so the man didn't notice anything until somewhere along the way, the preacher said in conclusion, which roused him from his slumber, he opened up his eyes into utter darkness. He reached to one hand and he felt that his wife was there. He knew his daughter was on the other side of him, but he could see nothing. And in a blind panic, he, he just stood up in the middle of church and he said, I'm blind! Indeed he was. Every Sunday he came with his family and he thought that his physical body sitting in a pew meant that he was a part of the group that he was sitting with. But the reality is, guys, that the church in Ephesus would be in danger of losing their candlestick because they were in danger of losing their passion, losing their first love. I think one of the greatest ways that we can prevent losing our first love is to remember that this isn't about us. This is about something way bigger than us. This isn't our plan. This is a way bigger plan than our plan. This is about His plan. This is about Jesus. This is about reconciling people to the one who created them.
and who loved them enough to send his son to be their savior. This morning, we're going to stand together as a church. Maybe you recognize this morning that you're blind. Satan is a master blindfolder. But you can pull that blindfold off today. You can wake up, old sleeper, and let the light of Christ shine up on you. That is your choice. God has given you the power to be fully awake in Christ. I just challenge you to do that. If you have a need this morning, maybe you've never never been forgiven of your sins. You've never had your sins washed away in the waters of baptism. Maybe, maybe you were, but you've walked a long way from that path between now and then. Maybe this morning as you're sitting here, you recognize I've let the fire go out and it's time for me to turn it back up again. If you have a need, please don't leave here today without making that known. You're welcome to come as we stand together as we sing.